understanding that weird book of Revelation. This is part 11. And we've done, uh, this will be the third Sunday night, looking at this issue of will there be a secret rapture of the church or a rapture of the church because it's presented in different ways before the second coming of Christ. In other words, somewhere before or early in the tribulation, the church is raptured, um, and then you have the tribulation, and then there's the second coming, and then there's the millennium, and a, and a host of other things. And so what we did is we paused right in that 10th chapter of Revelation, and, and I said we'd take a few weeks branching out from the book of Revelation to compare what I think that text is dealing with, but to compare that with other New Testament texts, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, because anybody can have a favorite verse that they build their case around, but the trick is to synthesize and to pull together and see, so what is the weight of New Testament teaching on on an important subject like that? So where we were is Revelation 10 I'm going to read the text and just make a couple of comments because we've been away from this for just a little bit. Revelation 10, 5 to 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, There would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. There are three important sevens in the book of Revelation. Anybody remember what they are? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls. If you read through the book of Revelation, you will find that at the end of the seventh seal, you have the second coming. At the end of the seventh trumpet, you have the second coming. And at the end of the seven bulls, you have the second coming. There aren't three comings in the book of Revelation But what's happening is each of those sevens leads right up to the end. Seven seals cover the broad scope of the time between the first and second coming of Jesus. All of history. And Jesus is the key to that. He can open the scroll. The seven trumpets come later. And then the seventh bulls come right at the end. Seven trumpets are in the seventh seal. The seven bulls are in the seventh trumpet so that each leads right up to the end and you have this building, intensifying of events. The seven bulls are technically the wrath of God poured out quickly at the end of the age. So where we are is we're looking at the sounding of the trumpet of this seventh angel. So we're, we're right up to the end. This last trumpet unfolds the sudden events of the seven bulls and the outpouring of God's wrath 
And what we've been doing is we've been comparing the meaning of the events of that sounding of the seventh trumpet. We've been comparing that with Jesus' teaching in what's called the Olivet Discourse. We looked at Matthew 24. You could have looked at Mark 13. You could have looked at Luke 21. They all record basically the same thing. In our last teaching, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul's teaching about the second coming and what he said about it. And now we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Some other striking events. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are two key passages to pull together and compare with Jesus' words in his Olivet Discourse, the discourse given on the Mount of Olives. Because you have to make them all fit together. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 17. Let me just read it. Do you have it in your notes? Okay, so just kind of follow along as I read. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we know what he's writing about, and our being gathered to him. Our being is the church. He's writing to Christians, the Christian church. Our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. So some prophetic utterance, some message that was given, that's what he means by a spirit, or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless, and then there's some interesting events that he talks about, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. We read some of those things in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So this this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, he's, he's being held back right now. That's what Paul is saying in verse 6. You know that what is restraining him now so that he may re- be revealed in his time. For, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So, so you have... What John talks about. John talks about the spirit of Antichrist. Many Antichrists. John uses that term. And the Antichrist. So there's, there's that spirit of deception in prominent people. And then there's the Antichrist who is still to come. Paul is saying the same here. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness... There's going to be the man of lawlessness. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it, 
the second time he's mentioned that, will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So, that phrase, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, um, there are a lot of people who take all of these prophetic passages, especially in Revelation, but even some of these, and they say, well, this is just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And I don't know how, I don't know how you make that work with words like, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, doesn't fit with 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore, these are strong words. Therefore, God, this is not Satan now, this is God. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Sends who? Well, those people who refuse to love the truth and be saved. In verse 10, that's, that's who he's just been talking about. Verse 11 says that God sends them, if you don't love the truth, you hear it, you know it, you see it, but, but you just refuse it. What happens after a while? Well, it, what happens is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans 1, where God turns them over to a base mind. He's saying the same thing here in different words. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. You don't love the truth? The opposite isn't believing in nothing. Reject Christ, and the opposite is you become addicted to error. So that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Does that describe a big chunk of our culture, pleasure in unrighteousness? But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as a first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, not like the others who refused to believe the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You see the authority of these scriptures. It's just like Paul speaking in person, he says. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So why did Paul write this? That's a long passage. I read it right through. Why did he write this? It's a fascinating text, and it continues on the same subject as 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. But there's a, a question these 
Christians were asking. If you remember, you can get it online if you forget, but 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul is dealing with a question about the future of those believers who were already dead and buried. We read them at funerals all the time. The members of the church were concerned that their deceased parents, family members, loved ones, they would miss out on the blessings of the second coming of Jesus. And Paul comforts them, reassures them that their departed loved ones who died in the Lord, they would be the very first to participate in the coming of Jesus because the very first item on God's agenda when Jesus comes is the dead in Christ are raised. So they don't miss it. They're involved in it. They see it. They witness it. You behold the grace of God. I think about someone like my dad who preached about the second coming of Jesus his whole life and then dies before Jesus comes. What a shame if the greatest thing in his life that he looked forward to his whole life he missed. And God in his mercy said, no, no, no. First thing I'm going to do is raise Mike Horbin so that he will see me come. It's a wonderful thing. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, I've just given you a review. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord. Paul says, I'm not making this up. I got this from Jesus. That's what he's saying. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Cry of command. Voice of the archangel. Listen. Sound of the trumpet. We're looking at the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. With the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. First thing that's going to happen. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he says, comfort one another with those words. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2. Still talking about the second coming of Jesus, but addressing a different question. Apparently, we know this, I'll show you how we know it, At least some of the Christians in this church, remember, some of them are first-generation Christians. They've not grown up with the tradition and all the teaching that you've had. So it's easy to kind of feel, how could they have been so silly? But this this is brand new to a lot of them. And some of them are upset and they're confused about about the timing of the second coming. In fact, some are actually worried that, that they've missed the whole thing. That it's already happened. Come on, Pastor Don. These people aren't stupid. Nobody could possibly think that the second coming has already happened. Watch. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Don't take my word for it. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Look. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Somehow they had this in their heads. So 2 Thessalonians 2 is written to Christian people who are thinking, well, has, this, has the day of the Lord already happened? What, 
What could possibly make them think that? So that's question, point two. What was the error in the minds of these Thessalonian believers in that church that, that Paul was trying to correct? So, so the key issue seems to be the meaning of that phrase. The day of the Lord. You see that in, in that uh, second verse. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Either by a spirit. Somebody gives a word of prophecy. It happens. And they're off base. Or a letter seeming to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they're in a state of unrest and turmoil. Because well, the day of the Lord has already arrived. Now, it seems to me that the important question we need to look at tonight. What is meant by that phrase, the day of the Lord? In my theological education, I had teachers. I had teachers who taught specifically that that day of the Lord meant the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I've got dozens of books on the shelf in my study, that say the day of the Lord is the rapture of the church before the tribulation. And so those people would say that these Thessalonian believers were upset because they felt they had missed out on the rapture and they were, as a result, going right into the great tribulation. Now it's right in this passage that I find the the pre-tribulation position to be the most unlikely to accept. Because Paul's answer to these disturbed Christians is the last thing in the world you would expect him to say if these Christians were worried that they had missed a pre-trib rapture. Look at his response in verses 3, 4, and 5. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day. Let's assume that that day means a pre-trib rapture of the church. It doesn't mean that, but let's just pretend that it does. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, those are really strange words if these Christians were worried that they had missed the pre-trib rapture. If Paul were a pre-tribulationist, and if these Christians were worried that they had missed the rapture, here's what I would have thought he would have said. You didn't. And here's how you can know you didn't. You're Christians, and you're still here. And Paul would say, and I'm the Apostle Paul, and I'm still here writing you. And in fact, this letter, when you look back at the beginning of it, is directed to all the churches of God. And so, all the churches of God have missed the rapture. Does this make any sense to you? That all the Christians everywhere are still here and have missed the pre-trib rapture. Here's my question. Who went up in that pre-trib rapture anyway? It's not for atheists. That, it seems to me, is how Paul would have answered their question if he believed in one of those secret raptures of the church just before the tribulation. But he doesn't say anything like that. In fact, here's what he does say. 
these Thessalonian Christians weren't troubled because they thought they had missed a pre-trib rapture. Neither they nor Paul had any concept of a pre-trib rapture in their minds, and I would say none of the early church did. These Christians were concerned because of a misunderstanding that grew out of the present persecution and suffering that they were experiencing for their new faith in Jesus Christ. You can see that in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You became imitators of us, Paul says, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Or 2 Thessalonians 1.4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, some of their questions start to come together. They probably had mistakenly come to the conclusion that they were actually in the Great Tribulation. This is a newsflash for us in the North American church. Do you know that there are so many places on the globe where if you went to the church right now and said you are in the middle of the Great Tribulation, it wouldn't surprise them one bit. Do we all understand that? For, for vast numbers, of, strike that, for the majority of Christian believers on earth today, just numerically, for the majority of them, it would not be hard for them to believe at all that they've been in the Great Tribulation for years. Put in prison, kicked out of their homes, executed, losing jobs. It's happening all over the globe. So, here are these Christians, Thessalonica. Paul writes them. They're experiencing intense persecution. It would not be a stretch at all for them to think, although they have the Lord, it's right here, we're in the tribulation. That's what they were thinking. And so they knew from Paul's previous teaching, 1 Thessalonians 4, from teachings of our Lord that got passed on to the church, that, well, the second coming is bound to happen very, very, very soon if we're in the tribulation. And so that false conclusion would lead them to all sorts of things. Paul found a church full of people. Read it. He found a church full of people who were quitting their jobs. (laughs) They were stopping working. And Paul has to remind them to, no, no, just just settle down and stay with your present responsibilities. He says that to them in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 13. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right but to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly, earn their own living, not to grow weary in doing good. And so you can see Paul's emphasis in these, in these words. He's telling them to stay focused with their present responsibilities. Don't become undisciplined. 
Don't just pack in things. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. Don't make like you've only got a few years. No, be faithful. Stay busy. Stay disciplined. Persevere. Don't grow weary. Why? Well, why were they to stay calm and not be shaken in their approach to life? Paul tells them, well, you'll know, you'll know when the second coming is drawing near. You won't have to guess. You will see signs. He talks to them about Antichrist. Why would he tell them about Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation if they were leaving before the tribulation started? What sense would there be to that as a sign for them? Do you you see what I'm saying? In other words, the nature of Paul's response is exactly what you would expect it to be if he believed the rapture of the church took place right at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the way he explained in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And that's why he tells them. Most of them are Gentiles, not Jews. He tells them that they, before the second coming, they would be there to see the uprising of Antichrist, which would make no sense at all if they were going to be raptured before the tribulation. Why would Paul try to convince these people that the day of the Lord had not come by pointing out a man of lawlessness that they were never going to see anyway? Point number three. He talks about a great deception and a falling away in the last days. We're, we're getting close to done now. You see it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 to 17. Where he says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. This wasn't God's fault. They weren't like predestined not to be saved. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's more in these verses than, than we can like go into in detail. Let me just close with a couple of practical things. A, people who base their faith on signs and wonders are going to be in deep trouble in the last days. I get that in verses 9 and 10, where he talks about the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. Notice that contrast. They, they love they love signs and wonders. They're, they're not crazy about truth. They love to see stuff happen. They don't particularly like to think. And Paul says they're going to be sitting ducks in the last days. 
is such a strong warning. I speak as one in, in a Pentecostal tradition. I speak as one who embraces scriptural manifestations of the work of the Holy Spirit. This same letter, this very same letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul has to encourage them not to despise prophecy, etc. He says, don't. Don't despise it. We should welcome the work, the touch, the grace of the Lord in supernatural ways among us. But we should never measure anything as genuinely from the Lord just because it's supernatural. Isn't it interesting that God's going to send these as a delusion to people who don't love the truth? I didn't write that, it's, but it's right there. He, he tests where people are at. Do, do, you just, do you just love reading and thinking about neat stuff? Or do you, do you like plowing through the book of Hebrews? Second thing here, the choice before everyone is to love the truth or to perish. I get that in 10, 11, and 12 of 2 Thessalonians 2. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Boy, what profound words. They're discomforting words to me. What makes people so vulnerable to deception? What puts lives in this incredible peril? And, And the answer sort of smashes in on this relativistic culture and relativistic church. They refuse to love the truth. It isn't enough just to know the truth. Lives aren't preserved by knowing the truth. You have to know it first. You can't love it until you know it. But lives are preserved by loving the truth. You'll see it over and over again. He he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He's like a tree planted by rivers of water. And in, in his law, he meditates day and night. It is a delight to it. Work hard in 2018. Work hard, and I know that sounds contradictory. Work hard to deepen your delight in spiritual things. Don't let your heart rest with just a casual interest in things. If you're going to read your Bible, for goodness sake, pray before you read it. Ask God to The psalmist says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Spend enough time there that you start to to feel something feeding your soul. Force yourself by reminding yourself of the emptiness of all the things that we tend to prioritize that won't last two seconds after your heart attack. Love the truth or perish. What do you love most about going to church? 
What excites you most about the Christian faith? What gives you the most pleasure in daily living? I have no hesitation at all to say that Paul would say you and I should give the same answer to all those questions. We are passionately in love with divine truth. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our pathway. Kick out of your schedules activities that pour error into your minds. Listen to this before you go home. In North America, Canada, U.S., the average evangelical Christian, get this, average evangelical Christian spends 21 hours a week on the internet or watching TV. 21 hours a week. The average North American Christian spends 90 minutes in devotions. Do you think there's any possibility of that Christian learning to love the truth? Not a ghost of a chance. Not a ghost of a chance. Balance things out a bit this year. Balance things out a bit this year. And save your soul. Everyone said?